0: Welcome to Project Blue, a podcast about the people, companies, and ideas changing the way we think about and manage our global water resources. My name is Matt.
1: And I'm Alexandra. Join us as we explore innovative technologies defining the future of water. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to episode six of Project Blue. Today I will be speaking with John Lieberzon. John is the VP and Director of Business Development at Tomorrow Water BKT. Tomorrow Water is a solutions provider technology developer, and they're working on a range of innovative wastewater treatment technologies. John has a lot to share about the technologies that they're developing, as well as some of his thoughts on the wastewater industry in general. I hope you enjoy. Thank you so much for joining, John. We're really excited to have you. I think it would be great if you could start by giving us a brief introduction about yourself.
0: Sure. Um, my name is John Lieberzon. I am the uh, director of business development and VP at Tomorrow BKT. We are a solutions provider, technology developer, and um, you know I got into the water industry actually from a weird direction. Uh, before I got into water and wastewater, I was in uh, international development focusing on agriculture and really saw the value of of water and the value of wastewater as a potential resource where water is scarce as well as um, some of the integration between compost and other flows of of mass and carbon and and things that are healthy for soils that relate to uh, wastewater treatment. And so when I came back to the US after working for um, a while in Haiti, I kind of got more and more interested in some new ways of treating wastewater and boosting resource recovery um, so that we can get multiple benefits out of our uh, waste management.
1: Definitely. And resource recovery is a really exciting topic that I'm excited to get your thoughts on. But first, if you could just give a brief background on the technologies that Tomorrow Water is working on, because I know that you're developing the range of technologies and maybe there are different stages in the development process. That would be great.
0: Yeah. So, well, first I'll just say, you know, BKT, our our parent company, was founded in Korea over twenty years ago, um, and they started with just one technology, and they built their portfolio up until now. We've got you know eight different portfolio technologies, roughly, and more on the way. Um, we opened a U.S. company, Tomorrow Water, which is uh, was opened as a subsidiary in two thousand and eight. And really, the goal of Tomorrow Water is both to help launch some of the technologies that were developed in Korea in the rest of the global market, as well as develop our own technologies here in partnership with um, actors like, like consulting firms and academics and other um, thought leaders here in, in North America um, and the rest of the world as well. So. First and foremost, our our flagship product is our Proteus and BBF biofilters. Um, And really the the problem that this is coming to solve is, first of all, we've got more and more people um, in denser and denser areas with less and less land. So first of all, uh, this is an intensification technology to get the most treatment on the smallest footprint. Um, So especially in places in the U.S., you know, speaking, for example, on the coasts, Um, where you've got really dense areas, not a lot of land availability, and you've got growing populations. You know, how can we manage these growing flows, these uh, larger and larger waste streams, on smaller and smaller pieces of land, and even multi-use. So this technology can be built so that, you know, to turn a wastewater treatment plant or a water recovery facility into a public park or even build on top of it with other useful applications and, and, uh, and buildings. The other thing that this does is it's really a sustainability technology so we're implementing this as a primary filter and that allows us to basically catch more stuff up front and um, treat it in the solids train of the plant rather than having it go through the liquid train and that saves a lot of energy for the plant because they don't have to rate all of this carbon that they can now send to actually produce renewable energy instead. Um, And then finally, this technology is really active in helping utilities achieve resilience in the face of climate change and wet weather flows. So um, rainfall patterns are changing. Uh, Almost all the plants that you talk to around the US, they're finding that um, their storm events are becoming less predictable, peakier, stronger, and this technology allows them to deal with these rapidly increasing stormwater or, or kind of peak flows that get into the collection system. Even if you've got a separated sewer, oftentimes, you know, storm flows will kind of get in there and arrive at the plant. And it's very hard for the plant to deal with them, especially since you don't want to have to, say, double the size of your plant just to deal with a big flow that comes, you know, a few times a year. So those are all problems that our Proteus and BBF biofilters help to address. We're also launching some other products into the market. So we have an Animox technology and that Animox technology is really a new biology for nitrogen removal, um, which is one of the kind of three key uh, elements in, in wastewater that we try to remove. Right. We try to remove organic matter as, as suspended solids or, or we call it we call it B.O.D., and uh, when we're looking at the amount of uh, organic carbon really in water, and then we try to deal with nitrogen and phosphorus. And those are sort of the top three, apart from, you know, the disinfection process downstream um, of, of just bulk flows that we try to limit into the environment. Um, that's a really interesting tech. And we can talk more about that afterwards. The last one um, that we're really focusing on these days is thermal hydrolysis. And this is really focused again on that solid stream of the plant. And the idea is when you have your solids handling Uh, thermal hydrolysis is something that you can pop in at various places there, either to increase the amount of renewable energy biogas that you're producing by digesting those solids, or to just reduce the quantity of solids that you produce at the plant. Um, So for plants that have a disposal challenge, you can use thermal hydrolysis to reduce that volume and that weight by allowing you to get more water out of those solids, squeeze more water out, um, that water can then go through your process and, and leave as as, uh, as clean water, and then the disposal side of things gets smaller.
1: Definitely. Thanks for the background. And like you said, wastewater treatment is an interesting topic because it wouldn't really be a hard problem to solve if we had infinite space, infinite energy, infinite money, but we don't. So. It's really good to hear that you're working on these technologies that are intensifying the process and solving some of these issues. And I know a bit about Animox, and I know that it's an up and coming treatment technology. And right now there's some issues with having it implemented in mainstream treatment, and it's currently only very effective at sidestream treatment. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Animox and the challenges and where you see the technology going in the future.
0: Yeah, so let's start with how we get nitrogen out of wastewater now. Primarily, the, the, the nitrogen in wastewater arrives to us as ammonia, um, as basically a byproduct of our bodies. What we want to do is take that ammonia and convert it to nitrogen gas so that it can go up in the air. And, of course, nitrogen gas is inert in the atmosphere. So that's really the goal. And there's different pathways to get there. The pathway that um, wastewater treatment has been using for the last, you know, 150 years primarily starts with the ammonia and then adds oxygen to turn it into nitrite and then nitrate. And then we take that nitrate and we have to feed that nitrate along with some carbon to uh, bugs that then convert that to nitrogen gas. They strip that oxygen back off of it and they turn it into a gas and it goes in the atmosphere. So it works very well. And, um, you know, we've been doing it for a long time. The problem is uh, it does require a lot of energy because we have to get that oxygen in there somehow. So that usually is with aeration. And we also need to give that carbon food to the organisms in the last stage to turn that nitrate into um, nitrogen gas. So both of those things are costs. And people have worked for a long time um, to do amazing things with reducing the energy cost of adding oxygen to water to help this process, right? So we've worked on the physics of it in terms of diffusers and bubble size and how we build these plants and uh, even very fine controls about aeration so that we're giving only the amount of oxygen that the organism wants but ultimately it's the same biology, doing the same work. So what Animox says is, look, we found this organism that can do the same chemical process, but a little bit differently. What this organism does is it starts with half ammonia and half nitrite, which part way through that loop, and then it takes those two and converts them directly into nitrogen gas. So it's really a shortcut through the process We're using a different biology. And the application of that different biology allows us to get a huge energy savings all at once. So you're talking like a 65% energy savings. And really, nitrogen removal is a a big user of energy at plants, um, even more than getting, you know, the the organic waste out. The other thing it does is because now we're converting those elements directly to nitrogen gas, we don't have to go through the stage where we add chemical carbon. And so we're reducing the addition of chemicals we have to do at these plants. And because it's a very slow-growing organism, it produces 40% less sludge less byproduct that we then have to deal with as part of this process so it's really a a groundbreaking kind of sea change in the way we do treatment and removal of ammonia nitrogen the trick is up until now they've focused on the really high strength stuff at the plant so there's this kind of the main flow water going through the plant it's pretty weak human beings don't put that much nitrogen in wastewater but generally there's a part of the plant where we take the solids out and then you're, you're digesting them, you're producing renewable energy. It's a really important component of the plant. And then you squeeze the, the byproduct of that. And what comes out of that is a really concentrated stream. And generally what they do is they just take that back and dilute it into the head of the plant. Um, and so we call that the side stream. And that's where people have, have implemented anammox. And it's because it's usually easier to do things where they're concentrated and where it's a small flow. So the next step now is saying, all right, well, can we take the same technology can we move it into the main part of the plant where almost all the water is going? So rather than the side stream thing, which is like a low flow, high concentration stream, can we do it right through the center of the plant? And we're working on that too. So we've already commercialized the side stream technology. We have uh, two full scale plants that are operating with that side stream technology. We have pilots. Uh, we, we've been piloting here in, in Los Angeles that sidestream technology for a couple of years now, but we're, we're now just developing mainstream solutions and people have got a good beat on different ways to do the side stream, but we're still developing good ways to do the mainstream and really the, the limit there is actually not in that Animox organism, the Animox organism is doing basically the same work in both configurations, generally, the limit is how do we convert just half of the ammonia into nitrite and then stop the process there so that we can feed that anamox animo- that the ratio that it wants. So that, that's called partial nitritation and that's what everybody's working on with different ideas in order to get that to happen at the temperatures, the rates, uh, the concentrations that we find in the main part of the plant rather than these sort of hot concentrated side streams.
1: So it needs a very specific set of conditions do you see anamox being used for mainstream treatment as a promising avenue, or do you foresee a lot of challenges of implementing anamox for mainstream treatment?
0: I think that there's huge potential for this technology, and there's a few reasons. One is that it's well-recognized that water is a resource, and whether it's clean water or wastewater, it's just a factor of where it is in the use cycle. So the, the more efficient we can make our wastewater recovery facilities, the more water we'll have available. We're basically closing the loop where people are starting to look at one single water, sometimes a dirty product that needs to get converted, sometimes it's a clean product, so it's just before or after use really. Um, and so the, the the better we can get at cleaning it up, the more we'll have available. And specifically with mainstream Animox, you're getting that energy reduction, and so it's going to be more environmentally sustainable, less climate change impact, lower cost, and then also, Once we don't need that carbon addition, a lot of plants are basically using the organic carbon that comes into the plant to remove nitrogen. The minute we don't need that organic carbon to remove nitrogen, we can do other things with it. And specifically, we can convert it into renewable energy. So by implementing this technology, not only can we reduce energy demand, but we can really boost energy use and really get the most out of the organic matter, the resources that are available in that wastewater.
1: Definitely. Could you talk a little bit about applications of your biofiltration and thermal hydrolysis technologies as well? Because you just touched on where you've applied stream animals treatment?
0: Sure. So let's start with our Proteus and BBF biofiltration technology. So this is actually a technology that's based on processes that have been around for a long time. We've been installing biologically aerated filters for almost 20 years, and those have a, a nice place within the, the existing technologies for treatment. Um, you know, they solve a certain problem, but it took about eight years, and we came up with a brand new media design that allows us to use this platform for a whole range of other problems in the wastewater space. So, for example, right now we're getting into this field of how to deal with these very peaky storm induced wet weather flows at plants, right? This is something that we see in many, many places in the world. In the U.S., the Midwest is a really big user of these types of technologies. Any place where the, you have maybe an old sewer system, it can be a little bit leaky especially if you've got a combined sewer system that puts stormwater and, and sewage together. Um, like a lot of you know places, for example, in Pennsylvania, they're, they're older, um, they haven't been able to separate their sewer systems. Well, now every time that it rains, you've got this big surge coming through the system. So how do you make sure that all of the pollutants that are picked up in that sewer don't end up in a river or in the ocean, you have to treat it very, very rapidly. And so our bio system allows you to actively filter those flows by using um, essentially like these beads that are packed that can filter it, kind of like sand would filter water, except that if you imagine now a bigger bead that allows water to go through much, much faster. But at the same time, we're growing a biofilm onto that media. And so it's getting filtered. You also have bacteria that are growing in a film on each individual bead that are consuming uh, BOD and other pollutants. Um, so that's something that we're, we're implementing. We have um, some very, very big plants in Korea. For example, we've impl- implemented this a plant that is one of the biggest in Asia. It's in Seoul, in the capital of Korea. We just brought another one online and our biggest plant to date for wet weather filtration, for example, is doing 195 million gallons a day. So it's a lot of flow. You know, it's, it's like half of the flow that would come to LA on an average day right, of, of sewage. So big flows, and we're able to deal with these things to protect the, the water bodies. Another way that we're using that biofilter is, again, I mentioned that it's, it, you know, it's very compact, and that's one of the advantages. And that's really important for plants that seeing tighter and tighter nutrient limits. So for example, you know, the Chesapeake Bay has been suffering from excess nutrient pollution for a long time. So all the plants around the Mid-Atlantic seaboard. They are starting to see the regulators reduce the amount of nutrients that they can put out into the environment. That means that basically they need to do more treatment for every gallon of water that arrives at their facility. They have to get more nutrients out. So how can they do that if they don't have space to expand? Well, the answer is to put more intensive technologies on the footprint that they have. And you can either, you know, we want to make sure that we utilize all the assets that we have. So. You can actually add that as sort of an adder process at the end. And that's, that's something that this technology is really good for, as an example.
1: Do you see the need for this technology more in more dense areas, maybe in bigger cities? Or is there a need for it across the U.S.? For example, in the Midwestern states where there's more space, are they focusing on other treatment technologies just because they have that space? Or is there just as big of a need in your eyes?
0: It really depends. I think that if space, even in places that have a lot of room, A lot of times those communities are looking for options that are low cost and easy to retrofit and kind of play well with their existing systems. And we do have configurations that are kind of smaller and they're a little simpler. They're, let's say, above ground instead of underground. And so they require a lot less kind of construction work. You can kind of roll them off a truck, get them going right away. And then you still have a good option for these guys. Part of it is also there has to be a push for treatment. So, for example, with those wet weather flows, not every regulator says that you have to treat those excess flows to the same quality, right? And over time, regulators are starting to put more and more limits on the quality that you can um, send out with these flows. So, for example, some plants are able to do auxiliary treatment for these uh, wet weather flows, which is filtration. And they get great results from filtration alone. Other plants have a regulatory body, you know, at the state level that tells them, actually, we wanna make sure that we're getting biological treatment of all these flows. So even if you get a good quality filtering, we want it to essentially mimic the biological process in your main train. And so we wanna see bacteria chewing on this stuff. And in that case, we can provide them with a very low cost option to do that because most bacteria in wastewater treatment are floating around when they're floating around it's hard to sometimes keep them in a in a basin when flows are fast all of our bacteria are fixed they're, they're stuck they kind of live on the media and so they can deal with very large increases in flow and they can also um, consume those pollutants very quickly. That's where it really depends on what the regulator needs are, what the plant needs are but yes, we certainly have been successful in getting the word out about this and getting interest from uh, smaller communities in, in not just the Midwest, the Southwest, the, the South, the New England, many many areas are interested in this and of course also overseas.
1: That's great to hear. And since you mentioned overseas projects, I would love to hear a bit about the work that Tomorrow Water is doing overseas, specifically in developing areas of the world. And I would love to hear from you a little bit about what kind of sanitation challenges that developing areas are facing and what Tomorrow Water is doing to try and close that sanitation gap.
0: In the, in the U.S. and, and in uh, a lot of places, for example, in Western Europe, we have these very well-established waste treatments. Some of them are 150 years old, and that's part of the challenge that some of these utilities have about separating, let's say, their sewage sewer from their stormwater sewer, right? many parts of the world that really don't have this basic infrastructure, so I'm really looking at developing communities here. Now, you know, we have a sustainable development goal, SDG, SDG 6, to get everybody clean water. And, and part of the critical aspect of that is we have to access for everybody. You guys may have been uh, paying attention to recent movies and, and activities coming out from the Gates Foundation, but they've really made it clear. They say, look, we want to dub on getting sanitation, even to these urban areas in the developing world. And the real challenge is that they can't necessarily follow the same path that we follow. So Uh, In a place like uh, North America, generally, you know, planners came in and they set out uh, sewers and grids and they built the sewers and then they built the city on top of it. And when the city wanted to expand, you know, we had these zoning ordinances and they first had to put down sewer lines. So it's it's rare that you find an urban area that doesn't have a sewer infrastructure. Unfortunately, in developing countries, that's not the case. Oftentimes you have these cities that grew so fast without necessarily the same amount of planning and they grew in areas That became very very dense with absolutely no sewer infrastructure so now the question becomes well if you can't collect everybody's waste how to send it all to a single centralized treatment system so the problem becomes every house has let's say a latrine or maybe a septic tank those are very difficult to manage to dispose of you have contaminants going into the groundwater from improperly managed septic tanks you have septage haulers that have to go through these very thin streets pump out tiny latrines and then go and dispose of them somewhere. And there's very little oversight over, you know, exactly how that's being disposed of. So these are challenges that a lot of folks are looking at right now. And, and groups like the Gates Foundation have already said, Hey, we can't do it the same way as we did here. Instead of trying to go in and look, let's level everything and sewer it and start from stra- scratch. Let's deal with what we have, right? Let's deal with the systems as they are with these, you know, distributed latrine based or septic based, et cetera. Well, one thing that we have a company have, have noticed and we've worked in uh, a number of locations is that what happens oftentimes is that that use in these communities will use uh, existing drainage ditches and tributaries and things that end up emptying into a water body. So, you know, human beings have been using rivers to get what have raised for a long time. And unfortunately, it's very hard to completely eliminate those influxes into rivers. So sometimes we can actually position smaller treatment plants at the connection points where some of these smaller drainage systems or tributaries connect to a larger water body to protect that water body. So rather than saying, let's sewer everything up and create our own brand new system of engineered drainage and tributaries to go to a little plant, what we can do is we can put a lot of smaller distributed plants on distribution systems that essentially existed de facto, because that's what people started using. And that's another thing that our bio platform is really good for. So we really look forward to being able to leverage this unique technology that can deal with high flows of relatively dilute material at a, at a reasonable cost, very robust, you know, works automated without a lot of human intervention, to be able to try and provide sanitation access to some of these big cities and even smaller communities in areas where just sewering everything isn't practical. The other advantage of that type of system Is that you know in the uh, US for example most of our groundwater most of our drinking water uh, in most places in the US is at some point you know pumped out of the ground or maybe there's a surface water source but that surface water is kept very very clean in a lot of developing communities their water sources are uh, all from surface sources rivers lakes and things and and those surface sources are unfortunately contaminated and so They don't really have a lot of choice in how they can access clean water for a a sort of u.s style treatment to distribute clean water to everyone so another thing that we can do is we can use these biofilters to basically improve the quality of polluted surface waters to the point where that can then go on to a more standard treatment system that can you know kind of like we have here where it's used to getting a certain quality and then it can treat that and distribute it out everybody's house so that everybody gets nice clean water
1: that's great to hear and those are really great approaches to tackling some of the issues that developing areas are facing with regards to wastewater treatment. And I'd love to hear a bit more about where you have implemented the biofiltration technology so far in communities abroad.
0: So as I mentioned, the the um, system came out of Korea. Uh sixty facilities uh, already in Korea, including some very big systems. Outside of Korea, we have um, we we've we've had system. We have them in China. We have one in California. And then we've been active in piloting in some other communities. So we did a really interesting project down in Paraguay, for example. There's Lake uh, Ipicari, and I'm sorry if I'm, I'm slaughtering that pronunciation, but you know they said, look, we've got this big lake, it's a resource, the water quality in the, in the lake is very low. Can you guys actually deal with this with technology? And we did do a really interesting pilot down there um, where we were able to establish the system, you know, kind of cordon off a piece of the lake as a, uh, as, a, as a sort of test site, and very rapidly improve the water quality. And so again, if you have a surface water uh, source and you can just improve the quality of the surface water source, then the number of uses you can get for that water increases. So we're really excited about continuing to develop. We've got some projects in the works. I can't talk about them, but we're really excited about that opportunity.
1: Definitely. That's super exciting to hear. And you mentioned how Tomorrow Water and BKT are addressing these needs in developing world. I was curious about what you think are the major problems or challenges the developed world is facing and what do you think are the most promising treatment options for the issues we're facing here in the U.S.?
0: Yeah, well, you know, the interesting thing about the U.S. is it's actually, it's super diverse, right? So some parts of the U.S., their structure looks a lot more like, you know, what we have in the developed world, and some parts of the U.S. have the most advanced infrastructure on the planet. Overall, I would say that we're a little behind. So, you know, the American Society of of Civil Engineers has already given you rating to the infrastructure in the U.S., and that specifically includes water and wastewater infrastructure. So, the first step I think we need to do is we need to get everybody up to up to par. We need to go into communities where there's been underinvestment in their infrastructure, and we need to make sure that they get, you know, modern, high-quality treatment systems to just get them to where, you know, the big urban areas are already. And and we're active in that. You know, I think that there's really great programs out there like State Revolving Funds and WIFIA financing. Uh, we actually also do provide funding um, if that's something that a municipality is interested in, to kind of help them bridge that gap. So first step is let's get everybody that's been left behind up to the same standard that, that we accept. Then the next thing is what's going on in the future. I think that the, you know, resource recovery is really critical. So how can we turn these from treatment plants into recovery facilities? And what are we producing? The plant is getting a wastewater stream and that wastewater stream can basically be split up into useful fractions so that we can create clean water from that. And these days, you know, especially here in, the, I'm in California, right? And here in California and in the Southwest, as well as Texas. There's a lot of new programs developed around how can we create potable water from a wastewater stream using, you know, the most advanced technologies. And actually here in Orange County, you know, there's been indirect potable reuse where we've been using water that originated as wastewater, went through an advanced treatment process, got pumped back into the ground, and then is pumped up into the water system for for treatment and use for many years already. It's a well-established technology and it's growing fast. So clean water is the first resource that we can get out of our wastewater. The next resource we can get is nutrients. So nutrients, things that we try to get out of the water, oftentimes we talk about nitrogen and phosphorus, but those are really useful for soil health, for agriculture. You know, there's a lot of things that we need to be recycling those because all those nutrients come from somewhere. Phosphorus is mined, right? We mine phosphates and we put them in our fertilizer. We eat them. It comes out of us. Close the loop. Let's allow some of that uh, mass flow to return to the soil so that we don't have to mine out a a limited resource. And and phosphate is limited worldwide. Nitrogen, nitrogen. Nitrogen is basically another form of energy because primarily where do we get nitrogen for our bodies? We get it from our food. Does our food get it? Well, a lot of it these days in the modern agricultural economy originates as fertilizer and nitrogen-based fertilizers primarily are formed essentially by squeezing nitrogen gas until we produce ammonia. So it's kind of like the reverse of the process I mentioned before. In wastewater, we try to turn ammonia into nitrogen gas. Well, that nitrogen gas then gets squeezed back into ammonia and put onto farm fields. So is there a way that we can actually cover not just phosphorus, which is already well known. So sewage sludges, for example, once they've been treated become biosolids, um, those biosolids have a lot of value as soil amendments, but they don't really include a lot of nitrogen. You know, we're now working on novel ways to not cover the phosphorus and the organic matter and things like that, but really recover nitrogen as well. I think that's a huge forward-looking opportunity for us to get energy efficient and, you know, climate friendly. So, So I mentioned, you know, there's carbon, right, for soil health, there's nutrients, there's water there, there's a lot of energy as well. So the process of being wastewater is basically a lot about busting up chemical bonds and those chemical bonds have a lot of energy in them. And so we can continue to develop technologies that are get better and better at capturing whatever excess energy is in that wastewater, both chemical energy as well as physical energy. You know, some wastewaters are hot, some wastewater ha- has some uh, difference, it, it drops. And so we can actually collect some of the energy related to, you know, the the potential energy of watering through a system. So there's a lot of energy in, in water and wastewater systems that we can recover. And so those are all the different types of things that we can do. And there's also some new trends. I think that, for example, dealing with the solids that are a byproduct, the biosolid byproduct, the wastewater treatment is a really interesting space because there's a little bit of a shift happening. You know, there was a, a report that just came out from WEF that talked about the impact of new PFAS regulations on the handling of biosolids. So for a lot of years, we've been on a track where these byproducts of, of wastewater treatment, these biosolids, undergoing more and more treatment to get them to a higher and higher class of material and then go to beneficial reuse. So to be able to safely apply those onto land to get a lot of benefits for agriculture. Thing is that you may have heard of PFAS, these kind of forever chemicals. Well, they're starting to show up everywhere. I mean, they're in our bodies, they're in soils out in the environment. We're starting to find them in groundwater and in wastewater. And then eventually they also end up a little bit in biosolids. And the fact that those have ended up in there, just like they tend to go, you know, they're not produced by the process. It's just that, you know, they get received by these plants. That's causing some changes. They've found that in this report, some states have seen huge increases in costs relating to managing these these uh, biosolids residuals. So my, I grew up in Michigan, right? And Michigan has recently been the site of a lot of PFAS advances and, and learnings and developments, and they implemented strict new laws around PFAS. And that is in this recent survey, at least in a couple of, a few plants that's resulted in about a hundred percent increase in the cost of managing the residuals from those plants. So I think, you know, we're going to have to look at how can we still get benefits out of these residual projects while managing some of these new, contaminants that we're just starting to really learn and understand and be able to make sure that, that we keep the public safe and that we can manage these compounds. Other things that are really interesting right now, I think people are learning a lot about antibiotic resistance and you know looking at how do we manage the escape of antibiotic resistant genes into the environment so there have been some studies recently showing that a lot of these antibiotic resistance genes they are getting into the environment from uncontrolled sewage overflows this is another thing that's the result of wet weather changing water flow patterns, climate change, having, you know, more risk of sewage overflows. And so managing that is also going to help us manage potential antibiotic resistance genes. Of course, just like PFAS, antibiotics is another thing where, you know, we just get them, we don't produce them. So if we can reduce the source, if we can put less PFAS into the environment by having less of it in our products, if we can use less antibiotics that aren't necessary, for example, in in certain agricultural uses or uses that aren't therapeutic, that's obviously going to help reduce the overall loading environment but still because we're working in a space with public utilities the public utilities have to to do their part to assist with this management challenge so a lot of different things coming out and that's just two kind of examples but there's a lot of different chemicals that the more we learn the more we understand and the more we find that we want to be able to manage and and control
1: definitely and going back to resource recovery really fast i was just curious your process with finding applications for the resources you recovered
0: so in in today's world in Indeed, the resources are are generally left to the plant to deal with. So, for example, if the plant wants to do a co-digestion program and produce a lot more gas, well, it's up to them then usually to set up a power sale agreement with, you know, the local power utility um, and also to manage all their inputs to make sure that they're getting the materials they need to get on a regular basis to keep their production high, and at the same time that they have an off taker for some of their residuals, process can be very, very complicated and difficult. And I think that that's you know one of the challenges that limits some of the adoption of more advanced schemes. Uh, but it is it is something that I think we're moving more towards in the future. You know, there's some projects that have been nominally successful at this. Uh, you know, in biosolids, people have made consumer level products and they've been able to brand them and distribute them. I mean, King County is a great example of place where they produce like a branded consumer fertilizer, compost product out of their residuals. that has been super wildly successful. We're also looking at the industrial side of things. So we talk a lot about cities, but some of our technologies are really focused on how do we recover resources from industry. So one of the interesting projects we're working on right now is uh, looking at animal agriculture. So for example, when you look at swine and you you slaughter and render swine, people figured out uses for most of the body of, of the animal, right? So so that you know you can you can use the bones obviously the meat goes to consumption you can use many many aspects one of the things that is always landfill that isn't usable is the hair hog hair tons and tons and tons of hair coming out of these facilities and it's slow to break down and it goes to landfill so we have a, a kind of an up-and-coming R&D project we actually have some really interesting results converting that hog hair into a keratin product that then can be used in, in actually hair care to sort of restore some of the keratin from that hog hair into something that we can use to to make our hair better. So we're looking at resource recovery, not just from domestic sewage, but from all sorts of different components out there in the landscape.
1: Who would have known that pig hair would be such a valued product? That's very creative and awesome that you're finding ways to close the loop I've taken up quite a bit of your time now, and we're thankful for you taking the time to chat with us and to learn more about the technologies that Tomorrow Water is working on and BKT and your vision for the future. Do you have any last things you'd like to add or if anyone is interested in learning more about the technologies that you're working on, where would you direct them to?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'll just say that I I think our industry is so exciting. so much new technology. um, There's so much work to be done, and it's a huge impact. So I really, if anybody's listening that is maybe in school and trying to figure out, do I want to work in water? Do I want to work in wastewater? The answer is yes. (laughs) You
1: definitely should.
0: And check out our website. It's at tomorrowwater.com. It's got a lot of information. I also encourage, if you're interested in our technologies, to give me a ring uh, my email, you know, my name's John Lieberzon. My email's jl at tomorrowwater.com. Happy to hear from everybody and um, look forward to discussing. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the industry on your show and, and look forward to hearing more from you guys.
1: Thank you so much, John. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Project Blue. I hope you learned a lot from my conversation with John. I'm excited to see Tomorrow Water BKT's impact on the wastewater industry continue to grow. As John mentioned, if you'd like to learn more about the technologies they're developing, feel free to reach out to John at the email address he provided. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time.